Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert Hazelton, and I'll be your host. Today I'm going to talk about some Doctor Who stuff. I mean, who's surprised there? I'm also going to discuss some more vampire movies, because I did get the chance to watch some. And then I'm going to wrap up with some creativity advice and thoughts. So, got a lot to talk about. We'll dive right in. So I had two Doctor Who topics this week. The first is probably hot on everyone's mind, and it's about the fact that they pretty much announced that there was a Doctor that may have allegedly been around before the 13th Doctor. And I know that in some ways that feels like a bit of a retcon, and I don't know. I haven't actually watched much of the Jody stuff, so I can't really speak too intelligently to it. But just from the perspective of people thinking that they have introduced a new Time Lord that may have been in the past, there's a lot of contradictions in the classic Doctor Who um, episodes that actually could support that. There is an episode where the Doctor sees tons of incarnations of himself. There's an episode where the third Doctor mentions that he's thousands of years old, and yet later on Matt mentions that he's only right around a thousand. So... I'm not sure that I can get too bent out of shape over the idea that there was another Doctor incarnation potentially in there somewhere. I think that it's a little harder to buy that that character was around before the very first Doctor as we know him due to the fact that there's so many times that they show that he is sort of the original incarnation, such as when uh, Matt shows his library card and it's a picture of William Hartnell. Uh, That's just one example. So it's hard to imagine that there was an incarnation before that. And we know for a fact that William Hartnell's doctor uh, regenerated into uh, Patrick Troughton. And it is very obvious that the second doctor evolved into the third doctor when he was exiled to Earth. We actually watched John Pertwee turn into Tom Baker. Anyway, so there's all of these moments that we have actually witnessed the concept that there was another one feels a little bit tacked on. I do admit that. And it's and it's really completely unnecessary, too. Um, once again, I think the big problem with the newest Doctor Who stuff is that they just seem to be afraid to do a spinoff with another Time Lord. Uh, they could have just made a brand new one, but rather than do that, they fall into the Star Wars trap that everything has to happen with the Empire... And so everything has to happen as the Doctor. Meaning that the Doctor is always this this character that they're going to play with and fracture and do all this other crazy stuff too. As far as Gallifrey uh, being destroyed, I, I can't even necessarily get too bent out of shape over that either because uh, Russell T. Davies made Gallifrey gone. Uh, the Doctor pretty much destroyed it. And then Stephen Moffat retconned that by doing the day of the doctor where all of the doctors got together and saved Gallifrey and now they're going back on even that so you know they each of these showrunners come along and they sort of just throw out everything that happened uh, in the previous uh, incarnations shows anything they didn't seem to like or anything that stood in the way of them making their mark on the series they just they just get rid of and I mean, it kind of sucks for continuity, but then again, we are dealing with a time travel show to where the character says that uh, your future could be overwritten just in the blink of an eye without any real trouble. So 
I guess in a lot of ways the show has been set up to sort of support what they're doing, but that doesn't make it any less uh, difficult to embrace their choices, especially when most of them are just, they feel very arbitrary. And everything I read about it, it's just like, meh, it doesn't sound fun. Uh, Even bringing back Jack Harkness really felt more desperate than it did feel like something that was necessary or would really forward the show in any meaningful way. So my my take is, you know, I don't I don't care who the doctor is as far as their physical appearance or their gender. That doesn't have any bearing on the character to me. It's whether or not I can believe that the person playing that character has the sort of gumption and experience that goes along with whatever new personality they have. And that's sort of, it's it's about mannerisms and it's about uh, owning the role in the space. So uh, it doesn't matter how good the actor is playing that character and it doesn't matter how well they embrace it. If the writing is bad, then the show is just going to be terrible. And uh, there's plenty of examples of that in classic Doctor Who, which I've been watching a lot of. I've been trying to catch up on it, honestly, whatever serials they happen to have available. I've been catching. Now, I will say this. I really honestly feel like they should probably just stop allowing the people who write Doctor Who right now from doing it. Just stop them. And somehow contract the guys who write for Big Finish because those episodes are really fun and they're well done. I I just don't know that there's anybody out there who has such a firm grasp on the Doctor Who setting. I mean, they've, they're they writing for spinoff characters, too. Just tons of great stuff. And everyone that I have listened to has been... Uh, would have been ranked up there in my top favorite shows had they been visual. So it just seems like a missed opportunity to not just get them to do it. Um, what they're doing on the show, you know, creating these um, episodes that are much more... I guess, socially aware to the point that people are giving it a hard time for being woke or, you know, full of just social justice warriors or whatever the case may be. I can't really side with any of that because quite honestly, sci-fi from the sixties was pretty heavy handed with their social messages. I mean, that was kind of the point. And often with sci-fi, the point is to shine a light on uh, situations that are difficult or that we're, struggling with in our current modern society and a lot of this stuff is fits that bill perfectly so i have a really hard time with people complaining about it i mean i don't even know that i care about how heavy-handed a a perspective is Uh, i know that sci-fi likes to couch it in the setting but by the end of doing that whenever you have some crazy science fiction movie like Soylent Green, eventually they pull out the hammer and hit you over the head with things need to change or, you know, things need to change or else. <laughs> so it's it's really hard for me to get behind people who are complaining about the, uh, the, the, the messages that these folks are trying to convey. I still think that BBC went a little overly conservative with things by saying there'd be no more Christmas episodes or whatever else. But uh, as far as like focusing and shining a light on messages on issues like climate change and all that kind of stuff, I just, I, I, I won't fault them for it. I can't, 
I mean, not without turning on some of the Star Trek episodes I loved as a kid or, uh, you know, The Outer Limits and The Twilight Zone and and novels from authors. Dune, I'd have to really start forsaking some serious entertainment on the... Uh, pretense that I was angry about them trying to convey some some personal political agenda and whether it's political or ecology or you know social injustice uh, racism that kind of thing I mean that's that's kind of half the point you know it's not just ray guns and monsters especially with Doctor Who and that's going to lead into my next topic in a moment but I mean Doctor Who specifically travels the universe and does things in a pacifist uh, manner he's not beating the crap out of people he's not solving every problem with a gun and so that really lends itself to a conversation and that's really what we need in many cases now people want to complain about the batwoman show being woke for some reason i don't really get it i've watched arrow i didn't really think that arrow is any better or worse than batwoman and i didn't see any particular agenda i saw the character being a little pissed that her family kind of sucked and uh, ultimately i thought it was fine I, I i even enjoyed it but why anyone thought that was so bad that they should practically start a campaign to hit every review site and destroy it with audience reviews that were terrible is completely beyond me. I didn't even see a message in Batwoman. At least Doctor Who has the benefit of being shellacked for what they're complaining about. And I mean, I will say that, you know, some people are doing the whole I hate it be I don't hate it because it's a woman doctor. I just hate it because it's too heavy-handed and I don't care about the political agenda. And well, yeah, okay, cool. Are you sure you ever watched any before? And sure, there are some some episodes here that were just straight funny, but they all had some kind of message, whether they were heavy-handed about it or not. They did bring that message to you quite often. So ultimately, I don't think that the problem is Doctor Who itself, nor the writing uh, focusing on that stuff, I think that it's just poorly conceived stories and people are hyper aware of it and hyper critical of it because they didn't like what they did the first time out. And there's some things that I didn't like that didn't make me excited enough to come back time and again. And some of those things involve, well, I don't like the fact that there's three companions. I think that's just completely unnecessary. And I think it's unfair to the doctor to have three companions when we're trying to stomach the fact that uh, we've changed gender and direction and the whole first season ignores all of the old foes which you know i'm also fine with that i mean the daleks show up so many times that they have a special section on brett box to just watch dalek episodes if you want so i think it was okay to let those monsters rest for a season i would i would think that it would even be better if she would have brought it up once in a while but since i've heard enough to know that she doesn't it's just you know there's missed opportunities there um i've said it before and i'll say it right now the idea that captain jack came back is a good one because there's so much rich lore and so many amazing characters that they could revisit that they could get audiences just from fan service if they really wanted to go that route. I'm not saying that's a good idea, but it 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 would work. If all of a sudden she found a way to save Rory and Amy, uh, that would be that would be amazing. I'm sure that people would watch at least that episode. 
Um, something else I think they could do to fix their show is stop doing one episode arcs and start going back to the old days of the serials so that they're sort of mini movies instead of these 13 disjointed episodes that always feel crammed at the very end. You know, maybe in season 13 they can actually focus on that and and create some more complete stories and give us a a better view of what's going on and slow it down a little bit because one of the jokes that i keep seeing on youtube videos is that it's a corridor running show you know it's always running down corridors and i can tell you there's plenty of running in the classic who but they don't do it quite as often so um i don't know all around i think there's a lot of things they could do to fix the show up and save what they've done with Jodie Whittaker, but I don't think they're going to. I think that there is a sense of arrogance in the way that they're approaching this show. And I mean, I even saw the article where, where after a show gets out there, uh, Jodie's feeling is that it's irrelevant how people feel about it. I believe that that quote was taken out of context. Um, I think that the intention behind that quote is to suggest there's nothing we can really do about it. But what's probably going to happen and be worse is that they'll go the route of Star Wars and try to course correct somehow. And whether that be retconning a bunch of stuff that happened or, you know, (laughs) it was all a dream, who knows. But um, I do feel that in this day and age with these incredibly valuable intellectual properties, the people who own them are desperate to keep hold of them and ensure that nothing happens to them that could ruin them in the future. And because of that, and because of the way that fans interact now on the internet with the creators, I really feel like we've come to a place where the audience unfairly and unrealistically impacts and influences the creation of art and media somehow we've come to a point where we are entitled to a direction that a show or a movie or a book takes. And I'm thinking back to Mass Effect 3. The ending of Mass Effect 3 caused so much chaos and drama. I mean, people were getting death threats and different different fans were sending in horrible stuff. I mean, I, I admit that I wrote a letter that was displeased with it. I felt that it was poorly handled because what they did was, I guess you're going to have to take two two perspectives here. So on one hand, I don't really feel like Bioware needed to apologize, and nor do I feel like they needed to change their ending. If they felt that that was the ending that concluded Mass Effect in their vision, in their way, then... That's their prerogative. They created it, and ultimately we can like it or not like it. I mean, there's plenty of movies that came out that people loved and people hated. And whether and, and, and honestly, in the same breath, there are movies that are just as polarizing. Um, I don't particularly like Temple of Doom, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but I have a friend who considers that his favorite of the of the series, just as an example. Now, when I wrote my letter to Mass Effect and to, to, to Bioware to complain about that ending, um, I let them know that I didn't really feel like after playing, after essentially playing those games for as long as we did and waiting for it to come out that long, I didn't feel that the ending was uh, satisfactory because it felt lazy. 
it felt like they didn't really want to make a choice. And so what they did was they just made no choice. Nothing really happens that is any different based on all of your decisions. And I mean, half the point of the game and, and the reason you replayed Mass Effect 2 so many times was to ensure that you got the outcome you wanted in that game going into Mass Effect 3. But by the end of Mass Effect 3, you quickly realize that everything you've done for all three games didn't matter. It's going to come down to this choice that, that is roughly the same no matter what. And that, I think, is what set people off. Was it a daunting task for Bioware to create three or two or four or however many endings? Absolutely. They had a lot of factors to deal with. But I've created um, quest webs like that before, and it's not all that hard to narrow it down to three and make... It can even be as simple as good, neutral, and bad if they want it to be that that simple or they could have done five you know super awesome you did everything great throughout the game you weren't a jerk uh, you were kind of bad but you weren't so bad you played it safe the entire game and you get this sort of neutral ending you know all the way down to you were a complete ass and you murdered way too many people and you lost half your crew during the suicide mission so you get this really bad ending um and based on that we as fans littered them with emails and, and hate mail and whatever else. And then they released a patch that changed the ending a little bit, gave you a new cutscene, explained some things. Now I will admit that that was one of my complaints was that it just sort of ends. And I liked that in the new one, they, they, they did give some, some speeches at least at the end to, to give you some closure. And that's ultimately what I wanted from the game. Even if I would have hated the ending, I wanted more closure than I got. And you know, I, I barely got any. And since they were so adamant that that was the last game, I really felt like it needed to end. Another thing that ended like that was the last Resident Evil movie. It ends, it's supposed to be like, this is the final ending, we're done. And then at the end, it leaves it open for another movie. They could have come back, even though they said they're done. Um, and I feel like with The Rise of Skywalker, we got a lot of course correction due to the, all the fallout from The Last Jedi. I'm pretty sure that Doctor Who could follow the same path with all that complaining. Now, the showrunner and star are certainly talking like that's not going to happen because they feel like they're doing the best they can. Um, so I don't know. In this in this current environment, the way that fans interact with stuff, they do have a lot more influence than ever before. Uh, people are very nervous when they when when the ratings go really low because other people are influenced by that. So, you know, maybe I'm a new fan to Doctor Who and I'm thinking about watching the latest season. I hop over to Rotten Tomatoes and I see that the 12th season has a 12% audience score and the <laughs> the critical scores in the 80s. Obviously, we're also in an era where we trust other viewers more than we trust the folks who... Uh, are doing this for a living because we don't know if those people who are out there doing it, you know, professional critics, quote unquote, we don't know if they've been paid. We don't know what agenda they have. It's really hard to ever feel like they can be trusted. And I think that's very interesting. You know, sometimes they just lambast stuff and you're like, wow, that guy just hated that. And he must have some integrity because otherwise he would just, you know, toot this thing's horn and move on. But then you get people who are just lavishing praise on stuff that everybody else hates. And it quickly becomes apparent that they just sort of 
they're, they're weird in a way. They and it's hard to tell when you can trust and when you can't trust a reviewer, um, especially when it comes to major franchises, because you don't know what influence the studios or the creators are impressing upon those people. Uh, ultimately, I see that in Star Wars, especially The Last Jedi had those incredible critical ratings and abysmally low for a Star Wars movie uh, audience scores. So we'll see what happens with Doctor Who. I don't know. I kind of have a feeling that they're going to uh, stop it again, sort of like what happened with the seventh Doctor where they just quit. They didn't necessarily cancel. They just stopped making Doctor Who until they came back around and, and had a good idea to refresh it again. Sometimes, sometimes these franchises need a rest and they need a fresh set of eyes to come in and give give a new take. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happened here. I mean, it, maybe, you know, what would be really awesome is maybe they should stop now and come back at the 60th anniversary in 2023 and do something awesome. I could see that. This leads me to another topic about Doctor Who, something that I was thinking about when I was watching some Tom Baker episodes. Back when I was a kid, I didn't really get into Doctor Who, and I didn't know why, um, but I kind of evaluated it recently, and I figured it out. The victory conditions were dramatically different in Doctor Who than they were in the shows that I grew up with, in Buck Rogers or Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, Quite often, uh, they were forced to uh, basically fight and and kill stuff, whether it be to blow up a Cylon or genuinely straight kill someone or beat them up or whatever the case may be. And while those characters did occasionally get captured, uh, it was more because they uh, were overwhelmed. And in Doctor Who, it seemed like they were always getting captured, and he never really fought back per se. And... It's because I had a different sense of what a victory condition was that I don't think I was able to get into it when I was younger. And more recently, as I'm watching the show, I kind of get the sense from the doctor, the way that he's played, that his choice to be kidnapped or captured or taken to the bad guy's camp or whatever the case may be is generally because he realizes that he is mostly in control of the situation. And even if he was to die, he would come back and while he doesn't necessarily want to lose a regeneration on some back world uh, there's just a sense that he's kind of got things in hand so his victory condition can be more pacifistic than constantly beating people up or blowing things up or any of that stuff and once i was able to sort of embrace that and quite honestly it was completely unconscious it happened once I started to really get into the uh, Ninth Doctor season, at that point I was able to really enjoy the show the way I think a lot of people were able to. I changed what I considered a victory condition. And back as a young American, I was always all about the gunfights and taking people down and all that craziness. But more recently, I uh, maybe I've mellowed. I don't know what the case may be. But regardless, I find the Doctor Who method of approaching problems a lot more exciting and interesting. And it tends to have a, a, a more satisfying ending in a lot of ways. Because I really like the message of there's always a second chance when you're alive. Uh, we don't really give people too many second chances 
in American action movies and that sort of thing. And even when we do, they end up burning that second chance within seconds by grabbing a gun or, you know, grabbing a hostage or whatever the case may be. They find a way to eliminate that second chance immediately and then get put down. And uh, so that was just something, a little observation I came up with about my uh, newfound affection for Doctor Who is this this concept of victory condition for the characters. And Doctor Who's victory condition is to come out with as many people alive and to not commit violence to overcome his obstacles. Whereas some of the shows that I watched, their their go-to was violence because that's what they knew. Oftentimes, our characters were soldiers. Uh, Captain Kirk quite often mentioned, I'm a soldier, not necessarily a diplomat. <laughs> Um, and Buck Rogers, the Gil Gerard diversion, he was, he was a captain in the air force. He tended to move straight to beating people down and that sort of thing. So, uh, very different messages and different ways to grow up with your characters, to be honest. So I think the Dr. Who way is a lot healthier in many ways. Um, not to say that I still don't enjoy those other shows as much, but oddly enough, I find those to be more predictable than the Doctor Who stuff because when having to come up with pacifist ways around obstacles all the time it tends to be a little bit more uh, interesting and definitely um, different than um, if all you have to do to defeat your enemy is to punch them and a lot or threaten them with extreme violence so a very interesting uh, thing that I came up with so Anyway, let's move on to these vampire movies. Um, I have been doing this thing where I'm watching a lot of vampire movies, and then I can try and talk about them here and write about them here and there. And uh, recently I watched the old movie from the 70s called Vampires, and it's basically two female vampires. They pick up hitchhikers. They bring them back to this crazy mansion where they do lurid things and then kill them. And it's... It's pretty 70s in the regard that there's not too much going on here as far as story building or world building. It's just vampires killing people, and it's got that 70s horror vibe, so it's actually a lot creepier than a lot of vampire movies generally get. Uh, quite frankly, it, it was a little unnerving. Um, maybe that's silly to say, but it, it's true. I found it pretty unnerving. Uh, they're just creepy the way that they interact with each other and with other people. So I actually liked it for the most part um it's but it's it's definitely a product of its time and there's a lot of unnecessary stuff in it but i mean that's kind of the point of some of these vampire movies now let's contrast that with the fact that they remade this movie in 2015 same title same basic concept they've changed a few things up so let's talk about the basic premise of the vampires movie um there's two women and they are basically squatting in this house. And a couple campers go and set up uh, nearby in their little caravan. And they're just there to hang out for I don't know how long. But they seem to be there for quite some time. And meanwhile, this one random guy, he shows up at a hotel and takes a room for a night. And then when he goes for a drive, he picks up one of the vampires and takes her home. And for whatever reason, it never gets explained, she becomes obsessed with him and and they start doing things, and she's feeding from him, and her friend feeds from him, and, you know, partying and undeath. And by the end, 
it's pure chaos. The vampires just lose their minds. They go crazy. They start murdering lots of people. And it's really abrupt. And it's really brutal. And then it's over. Um, there's an anecdotal ending that's not necessary to even talk about. But for the most part, that's the, the conclusion of the events of the actual story. So the modern version of vampires covers it pretty darn close. But in this case, the campers don't drive. Some of them walk in. Three of them walk in. Two of them were driving. They get killed by the vampires pretty early on. And then the random dude, he is part of it. But you kind of get the impression that maybe he's a vampire hunter. But they don't bother to explain that. And then instead of the abrupt sort of silent murder you got from the 70s version, these vampires torture people a little more. And they get really disgusting about it. There's a lot of gore and a lot of unnecessary violence. And... uh where one of the campers in the 70s version just gets straight murdered. In this one, they torture her a little bit, and then she escapes, which I thought was a little lame because it really was so impactful in the 70s version to have that happen. And honestly, anybody who's watching the 2015 version probably didn't know about the 70s version before they went in. And if they did, well, I guess you got a good uh, shake-up of the story. Um the 2015 version, I still enjoyed it, but it was not as good as the 70s one. And the description of the movie, when they start talking about how sexy it is and all this stuff, that, that was pretty much inaccurate. It was not any sexier. In fact, I think it was less sexy than the, the old version. Um, should you see the vampires movies? I guess if you are on a kick of trying to collect vampire movies, then yeah, maybe. They're both free on Amazon Prime as of my recording this. And that's how I watched them. So um, if you're desperate for vampire movies, those are definitely options. Another one that I watched is called Portraits. And this was a vampire movie that is supposedly based on Carmilla. But to say that is to really... It's pretty much the same as saying that movie Next uh, with Nicolas Cage is based on The Golden Man. The fact that a guy can see two minutes into the future is the only thing that is... Uh, the same between movie and novel. Uh, and in this case, the only thing that's really the same between Carmilla and Portraits is some names. Um, all around, this is extremely low budget, and the acting is okay. It's not terrible. It's not fantastic. There's a lot of little plot points they don't really flesh out or don't uh, explore completely. Um, but I have to say, I actually really liked this one, too. It was it was pretty fun. Um I do feel like it needed to either be longer or they needed some better focus to really explore some of the cooler concepts they had uh, in it. Uh, one of the pieces of description is that it is a movie set against a backdrop of burlesque and Victorian death photography. And while they do spend a reasonable amount of time on the death photography, they they only really show a little tiny bit of burlesque. And one of the lead actresses, from what I looked into, was actually... Uh, a burlesque dancer before she became an actress and what's interesting is she's one of the only characters who doesn't get to do a routine so um kind of a missed opportunity maybe i don't know maybe she just wanted to do some acting in this film um it's a little sexy but not too crazy and it's got a little bit of gore but again not too crazy kind of doesn't commit either way um it's i think the director's first narrative film that she was directing so uh, you can kind of tell that there are some some growing uh, pains in there, some learning curve. Um, 
but all around I'd say it is worth seeing if you like uh, that kind of uh, weird cultish vampire movie. You can uh, find that one on Amazon Prime as well. Um, I did watch Salem's Lot, the old version, and uh, if you haven't seen that movie, it's kind of a must-see. And then the newer uh, uh, miniseries that came out with Rob Lowe is actually a lot better, but they're both really fun to watch. And then uh, apparently they're making a like prequel to Salem's Lot, kind of based on one of the short stories, and that will actually be out with Adrian Brody, I believe I read. So that's coming out soon. So I'm kind of gearing up for that. I'm going to reread the book again. It's been a while. But uh, if you don't know, Salem's Lot is a Stephen King vampire book uh, he wrote a long time ago, and it's kind of his his answer to Dracula, much like uh, Reanimator is H.P. Lovecraft's answer to Frankenstein. So it's probably worth your time um, to check out if you haven't seen him before. Um, the old version is like Nosferatu vampire, whereas in the book he's you know capable of speech and, and all that stuff. Whereas uh, there is another movie called Return to Salem's Lot. Haven't watched that one again yet. I do own it. And that one, the vampires are a little bit more aware and, and they kind of own the town. It's it's kind of creepy in its own way. So there are some uh, vampire movies for you to check out. I will definitely be seeing some more. I'm not sure if I will before the next podcast. But if I do, I will talk about them then. And the final thing I wanted to talk about is some creative stuff. I just finished releasing the Blood Rights uh, animated film, and I learned so much from making that project. Um, I'm about to start a new one, and I'm not sure exactly what. I've been doing some test shots. I might do a Doctor Who fan animation. I did get a working TARDIS going in my animation software last night, and it looked really cool. Um, I also learned a whole bunch about After Effects. And, uh, you know, the tutorials on YouTube are actually really darn good. Um, But I have to say, the tool that I have been, or or I should say the resource that I've been taking the most advantage of that I want to turn your attention to is a site called uh, Envato Elements. And that's Envato, or I'm sorry, it's elements.envato.com. I'll put that in the description. And I have to say, I needed some stock footage. I needed some photos for some of the things I've been doing. I needed some tutorials. Um, They have all kinds of stuff. Fonts, actions, backgrounds, you name it. It's just, it's here. It's, It's $218 for a year. And you can pretty much download what you need. It does ask you to put in what project you're working on. Um, but it's super worth it. And I've learned a lot from going through the actions I found on here and reading through the templates that they've created. It's It's been a really neat way of, of, of picking up some new skills. Um, couple that with the fact that I have actually taken a really good um, Skillshare course for Daz Studios and learned a lot about lighting. And that was a while back. But if you, you find a good Skillshare uh, class, it's definitely worth it. And the prices on those are very reasonable. Um, all around, my my new goal before starting a new animation project is to sort of approach it by writing out exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to create my set list, and then I'm going to build those sets before I even start. And once I get into writing these all down, I'm hoping that I'll find any missing gaps of information that I need in order to 
uh, to, to, to realize the project fully. And what I mean by that is I'm hoping that I will be able to create a list of things that I need to learn so that I can learn it ahead of time rather than in the middle of the project. One of the things that delayed blood rides so long was that learning curve meant I'd get to a point where I'd have to stop and research it. And whether or not I necessarily had time to get into that level of research was was something else entirely. This way, I'm hoping I can really just create a list and go, you know, I don't even know how to do that yet. Let me figure it out and then learn it and then write down what I learned so that I can sort of address it. I'm going to take more notes, I guess, is my point. You know, seat of your pants uh, creation is really good for learning. It's not very good for putting out a product you want to share with people. And while I'm very proud of Blood Rights because of everything that went into it, it is absolutely a learning project. It is something that I have up there so that people can see what I did. I have a commentary about it, too, to, to, to give some insight into what I went through making it. But ultimately, it's for people who are trying to create so that they, too, can can see, hey, you know what? At least this is finished. And this was a completed project. And while there are things that I absolutely will change for the next one, uh, it is it is there to to see my my successes and failures, and I think that we need to have the courage to share that kind of thing and put it out there and and show ourselves more than anyone else that look not only did we do something, but we have it out there for the world to see. And now you know, perhaps with the caveat that I just m- mentioned, you know, with novels sometimes you don't get a second shot with people because. You know, you put together a whole book and you didn't edit it well enough. And then, you know, the super snide uh, grammar police come after you and they give you a hard time. They they put in bad reviews. I couldn't get past page three because there's so many editing errors or whatever the case may be. Um, But providing that you don't worry so much about the negative publicity for whatever you're doing it's good to share and try and get some feedback on what you've done you know in the case of blood rights i'm not putting it out there to make money i'm putting it out there to share to understand this better and to grow that skill when you publish a book to amazon you're kind of looking to provide a finished polished product and that's what people are expecting out of something they buy but with things that are free i think if you want to take your novel your first novel, for example, and share it for free. Put it up on Amazon for free. And even say, this is a free copy. This is my first piece of work, and I'm sharing it with the world to see how I did and to learn from this experience. Then I think that that's a good thing to do. I firmly believe that one of the big steps for anyone being creative is to share that work out, uh, share that work out with everybody. If you don't do that, if you continually keep it to yourself, then you'll never really grow because you're never going to find out. You're never going to get to that next step of implementing good advice or reading the bad advice and understanding where that bad advice comes from. For example, if someone tells you that you did a plot point poorly, you need to understand why they would say that. Because what if it's not bad, but you just conveyed it wrong? or a few paragraphs were confusing, that sort of thing. At least they drew attention to it, and now you can address it. And so the next big step after creating something, after building it and finishing it, is sharing it out. And whether that is free, or if you are confident enough to believe that it is worth paying for, you have to take that step. 
Um, and I took that step with Blood Rites, and I'm really happy I did. It is super fun to watch. Um, and it's short. It's only 16 minutes, so I'm not asking for a lot of time from people. Um, I'm really looking forward to the next one. I just I just can't dive right back into it because that's just not not the right decision when I just finished the big one. I don't want to go into it and have it look too much like the last one. I want a little bit of, of breathing room between the two. I'm going to work on the book a little bit more, uh, the cat that bit the demon. I'm going to work on the radio trauma a little more. I'm going to do some other things, and then I'll come back to animation. So that's sort of my perspective on the creative process when you get towards the end of something, regardless of how great you did on it. It's important to get it out in front of people. So remember that and act on it as you can. But anyway, that is it for this week. I want to thank you very much for stopping by and listening to the show. If you want to support the project, I encourage you to visit www.ko-fi.com slash Society Case Files, or you can visit my website at www.societycasefiles.com. And if you're just curious about me and my projects and work, you can visit www.roberthazelton.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to hearing from you next week.